You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual They're Democrats, each and every one of the 800,000 federal employees, including the tens of thousands being forced to work right now without pay. All of them, Democrats. So fuck them. Oh, no, wait, no, wait. They're all Democrats, all those indentured servants still screening our bags at airports. But unlike the overwhelming majority of their fellow Democrats, every last employee of the federal government, all 800,000 of them, they all want Trump to build his wall. So, you know, still fuck them. They're Democrats. No, 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 wait. Breaking. This just in. Federal workers are patriots. Great patriots. All caps. As Orange Julius Caesar tweeted Monday morning, we must work together. The without pay was silent. We must all work together to build a wall. We don't need to solve a humanitarian crisis the president created and to stop illegal drugs from flowing into our country, which they do primarily via airports and in the mail. And as of this moment, the president has no plans to build a lid over our airports or shut down the mail. But, you know, it's only Tuesday. I guess it's too much to expect consistency from the sundowner in chief, the bald and baldly racist, doddering old bigot in the White House. I mean, come on, Donald, pick one and stick with it. You can't run around the country for years saying that Democrats want to destroy the country and all federal employees are Democrats and then claim all federal employees are patriots unless they all owe their allegiance to and feel patriotic about a hostile foreign power bent on the destruction of the United States. And there's only one employee of the federal government that I can think of who matches that description, President Trump. Journalist David Leonhardt wondered why the resistance isn't out there resisting the shutdown. A deeply unpopular president shuts down the federal government, nearly a million people out of work. Federal contractors are being stiffed. Stiffing contractors is something Donald Trump learned to do in the private sector. And there are no large street demonstrations. If this were happening in Europe, Leonhardt quotes an expert, people would be pouring into the streets, but instead of lining up to protest, federal workers in Washington are lining up at makeshift soup kitchens. I have a theory. When a Democratic president signed civil rights legislation in the 1960s, he famously said the Dems were going to lose the South for a generation. LBJ underestimated the South and all those racist Southern Democrats lost to the GOP for generations, plural, along with white Americans all over the country who've been voting Republican, often voting against their own economic interest, again, for generations, plural. And at the center of the rights attack since the 1960s, right there in the crosshairs, the federal government and everyone who works for it. The right has been attacking people of color and the federal government and the courts since Loving v. Virginia and Brown v. the Board of Education and the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Ever since the federal government and federal employees were finally compelled after centuries to begin defending the rights of African-American citizens, even if that defense was half-hearted at best most of the time, the right has been waging a long war to delegitimize the federal government and anyone who works for the federal government. Well, anyone who isn't a Republican elected official, of course, who has pledged to destroy the federal government. You know, your parents might be old enough to remember this. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. 
After Timothy McVeigh blew up a federal office building in Oklahoma City in 1995, killing 168 people and wounding 700 others, Adam Gopnik, writing in The New Yorker, predicted that future historians were unlikely to write, In the mid-1990s, politicians and talk show radio hosts created an atmosphere of poisonous hatred against the national government. Also, in a completely unrelated development, somebody blew up the federal office building in Oklahoma City. The GOP has been pushing a poisonous hatred of the federal government and federal employees and the courts for decades now. And in a completely unrelated development, Americans have been slow to come to the defense of federal employees, to the defense of park rangers and TSA agents and food inspectors, people we've long been conditioned to regard as the enemy. Here's hoping the protests start, and here's hoping Americans take to the streets soon to demand that the federal government reopen and that federal employees and contractors get paid better so they're not all of them one paycheck away from having to line up at soup kitchens. If we can learn to feel differently about socialism, if we can learn not to regard that term as terrifying, we can and should and need to learn to feel and think differently about the federal government, its utility, its legitimacy, and all those federal employees out there. Finally, on a different subject, I gotta say, I've seen that look. I've been on the receiving end of that look. That smug smile on the face of that MAGA brat. It was instantly familiar to anyone who's ever been bullied in an all-boys school like the all-boys Catholic school I attended. No one attempting to de-escalate a tense situation smirks in your face like that. That's the look someone gets on their face when they're getting in your face, looking for an excuse, any excuse, to beat your ass in front of their friends. All right, coming up on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, the Savage Lovecast Magnum, twice as long, more guests, no ads. Carrie Goldberg, victim rights advocate and attorney, joins us to talk about a gnarly harassment case she has brought against Grinder. Plus, your questions and my answers on the Magnum and Micro editions of today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old married female living in Texas. Um, now, I have been with my husband for about four years. We've been married for six months. Now, my question is, we recently listed a couch for sale on Craigslist, um, so I did pull up his email to see if we got any hits. Um, I typed in Craigslist in the search bar to just narrow down the emails, and when I did that, I see that he had replied to a personal ad on there. Um, now, I know those aren't allowed on Craigslist anymore, uh, so that tells you how old this reply was but when I did check the date of that email it was when we were dating for about six months now I did confront him about it because we were together at the time and he did tell me that he did send that email and he almost cheated on me but he said that's when we were first dating and he didn't know where where the relationship was going at the time we've been together for four years and I had no inclination that he would ever cheat on me I hundred percent thought we had a perfect relationship and now a perfect marriage. Now we, I plan on having a, a child with this man and I love him more than anything. And I've always thought this relationship was a hundred percent perfect. And now to find out that he almost cheated on me, I just feel so upset and hurt and I can't stop thinking about it. Am I overreacting? Congratulations. You made it four years into a relationship, six months into the marriage 
still believing that you two were absolutely perfect for each other and that this relationship was perfect. So about time the scales fell from your eyes, I think, because no two people are perfect for each other and no relationship is perfect and people sometimes think thoughts. And sometimes people get online, they get on sites like Craigslist or they used to get on sites like Craigslist and they contemplate their options. They throw out a line to see if there are any nibbles, even if they don't want to get bit, even if they throw out the line intending maybe to get bit. They get a nibble and then they panic and realize what a good thing they've got. They don't want to screw that thing up and they don't follow through with it. Sounds to me like he didn't follow through with it. If you found his Craigslist emails, usually you will also find the confirmation in those emails that a plan was made to get together. A concrete plan was made to get together. You don't mention that, which leads me to believe that there were no concrete plans made, that he wouldn't have made the mistake of deleting the Craigslist emails where he was just putting himself out there and then deleted the emails where he was making a concrete plan to get together with someone. So what happened? Six months into your relationship, you were already sure that he was the person that you wanted and he wasn't on quite the same timeline that you were. He was maybe not sure yet. He was still deep in the dating discovery process, thinking about perhaps making a serious, exclusive, monogamous, lifelong commitment to you. And at that moment, he thought, well, is she what I want? Maybe there's somebody else out there that is better for me. Not perfect for me. No one is perfect for me. And in contemplating his options, he appears to have realized that, no, you were the one he wanted, that you were the best choice for him. I think you should take that as a compliment. I think you could take that as a compliment. You can latch onto it and you can say, oh, my God, I thought we were perfect for each other and I've just discovered something that I should have already known to be true, that we're not perfect for each other because no two people are absolutely perfect for each other. Or you can tell yourself he had choices and he chose me, that there were other women out there on Craigslist and probably other places that might have been interested in him. And there may have been a moment when he was tempted and yet he chose me. I was who he wanted and he had options. You can take this as a compliment that strengthens your marriage you can take this as an affirmation of sorts and kind of a bank shot affirmation. Nobody in a monogamous committed relationship, no one who is more certain about someone sooner than that person was certain about them enjoys contemplating that person, not being on the same page, not moving at the same pace, not being as certain about you as you were about them at the same time that you were certain. It is a bank shot affirmation if you want to view it that way. And if you're interested in the long-term survival of your relationship, of your new marriage, you should choose to view it that way. I want to end with this quick reality check. He thought about fucking someone else and didn't. And you're spinning that as he almost cheated and your relationship, all four years of it and your marriage, all six months of it, are a lie. You must have seen in the last four years and change some dude that you thought about wanting to maybe fuck. If you weren't in a committed relationship, if you weren't with this guy, there must have been some dude who crossed your path or that you saw on television. Have you watched Bodyguard yet? That you thought, mm, yeah, if I weren't with the man I'm with now, if I wasn't married to him or if I wasn't dating him, I would get with that. I would want to get with him. Well, him too. He thought about getting with somebody else and he fantasized using a tool that a lot of people use to fantasize, which is throwing out ads on personals websites with no intent 
of following through, no intent of actually cheating or meeting anyone. They just want the affirmation. They just want the erotic buzz that comes with getting a message from somebody who saw your pic or your ad and wanted to get with you too. So before you blow this up into a relationship extinction level event, ask yourself, have you ever wanted to fuck anybody else other than him since you met him? The answer is probably yes. So him too, he wanted to fuck somebody else at some point and he didn't. Now, of course, he took steps. He went out and looked for someone. Someone didn't just cross his path. And you can attach a great deal of weight and importance to that. Or again, you can focus on what he did not do. He did not touch anyone else with his penis. He did not follow through. He did not cheat on you. He had the option to. There was a moment where he could have, and he valued you too much and what you two have together too greatly to do it. Hey, Dan. Our daughter has been perhaps discovered using my wife's pleasure toys for her own amusement. Uh, And my daughter, who is 14, we need to figure out how can we suggest she get her own toys or do we drop her off at one of our local um, adult toy stores for, with, with a hundred dollar bill or uh, what do we do, Dan help? Unfortunately, you can't drop your 14-year-old daughter off at your nearest adult toy store, hopefully a feminist, woman-run, woman-owned adult toy store, because you got to be 18 in most places or 21 in many places to get into those stores. Unless your daughter looks much older and has a terrific fake ID, giving her 100 bucks and pointing her at an adult toy shop, yeah, that's not going to solve the problem. The only solution here is the awkward conversation that you desperately want to avoid. And think about this for a second. This is a case where someone is doing something, your 14-year-old daughter in this case, that's making you feel uncomfortable and making your wife feel uncomfortable and you're shying away from confronting her about it, not in an angry way, just having a conversation with her about it because you don't want to make her feel uncomfortable. Well, you guys feel uncomfortable. Why shouldn't she feel uncomfortable? And it is possible to have this conversation without shaming her. You just go to her and say, you're 14 years old and you're beginning to explore and experiment and we support that. You are a sexual being. You're not ready, we don't think, for partnered sex, but certainly ready for masturbation. Here's the thing, though. You're not allowed to use your mother's toys when you want to masturbate or explore. If you would like To acquire a toy or two of your own, hey, here's an Amazon gift card. You can order one and have it shipped to the house and we will not look inside. And you can keep it and keep it in your own room and it can be yours. And then I would add, if I were you at the end of this convo, we understand that this is an awkward thing to talk about and you probably didn't want to have to have a conversation with your parents about this subject. But that conversation became unavoidable when you invaded your parents' privacy and began to swipe their sex toys. So we need to make a clean line. We need to draw a line between what's yours in that space and what's ours in that space. And you aren't going to swipe ours and we aren't going to search your room looking for yours. And hopefully there will be no more invasions of privacy in either direction in this household. We respect your right to privacy. You have to respect ours as well. Or there will be more awkward conversations like this in your immediate future. Hi, Dan. I'm kind of lost right now. I try to follow your advice in a lot of what I do in my life and in my relationships, but my fiancé just left me. 
We've been together for four years and engaged for two, which I know can be kind of short, but but my question isn't about how to deal with the emotions of the breakup. My question is two parts. How do I go about untangling the last four years we've had together? Most of the property that we own, physical things, we own together, and I'm going to be moving out in a week or two. And on top of that, how do I make sure that our, our friend group doesn't alienate him or me because it wasn't a mutual breakup, but it wasn't bad either. It's sad, but I don't want my, my close friends to be mad at him for hurting me. And I don't want his friends to be mad because I couldn't live up to the expectations that he wanted. So you tried to follow my advice and your fiance left you. I apologize if my advice blew up your relationship somehow Moving on to your questions, how do you untangle the last four years, all the physical property that you two own together? I assume you're talking about furniture and kitchenware. I am guessing at your stage of life you didn't buy a house or a condo together. Well, you have a conversation with your now ex-fiance about the property that you own together, the things you own together and what he values and what he would like to take versus what you value and you would like to take. You may find that there's an end table that you want that he does not want. You may find that there's a couch that you want and that he also wants that you spent a certain amount of money on together. You determine what that couch is worth now and if you can't agree who gets it, you flip a coin and the person who gets the couch then pays the person who doesn't get the couch the value, not of its original purchase price but the garage sale, yard sale value of the couch now. And that can be a painful process particularly if you guys – share an aesthetic and you really like a lot of the things mutually that you both acquired together, but it's a common dilemma. Anyone who's ever been divorced and there are a lot of people out there who've been divorced, anyone who's ever broken up with somebody after cohabitating with them has been through this. The more complicated question is how do you make sure your friend group doesn't kick him out or his friend group doesn't kick you out? How do you make sure your friends aren't furious with him on your behalf? How does he make sure his friends aren't furious with you On his behalf, well, your friends are going to take their cues from you guys. If you talk shit about him to your friends, your friends are going to fling shit at him. If he talks shit about you to his friends, the same will happen. Now, friends will sometimes in the wake of a breakup feel like it's their duty to start talking shit about an ex, your ex. And you may have to head that off to the past. If your friends start in on him, you should say, no, no. The breakup was hard. The breakup was painful. I didn't live up to his expectations. He broke up with me. I didn't see that coming. I thought we could work our way through this. I like him still. He's a good person. We weren't right for each other. Better we part now than after marriage and kids and more property and a house. And we're trying to stick the dismount here. We're trying to salvage a friendship. Not immediately. So maybe in the next six months or a year, you don't invite him around, your friend groups don't mingle much, but a year from now we want to be what we were for a lot of our relationship, which is, you know, close friends, just without the close friends and lovers and fiancé part of that. So don't throw shit at him. Don't talk shit about him. That's not helping me. Your friends who talk shit about your exes, they think they're doing you a favor. Let them know that it's not a favor that you want them to do. Let them know that you want them to take you out, to go to movies, to hang out, to buy ice cream. Let them know that you want to be distracted. Let them know you want to talk about other things besides the breakup. And in time, what you want from them 
is to accept your ex back into the friend group, just as you hope to be accepted in time back into his friend group. Hi, Dan. Um, first of all, thank you for the 10 years of advice that you've given me and uh, knowledge that I've gained from your show and your column. I'm calling because I started dating a guy recently and it's been a couple of weeks and he expressed an interest in wanting to change my tampon or um, pad during my cycle. Um, he suggested that this would bring us closer together um, and still more trust and vulnerability. I don't know. I've never had that request before. Um, I don't use a tampon, and I told him that I use a Diva Cup. <laughs> and he, he said he definitely wants to learn, and um, he, I don't know. It's just something he wants to do. I asked him if he's done it before. He said he did it before with um, a prior girlfriend. He said it's not a fetish or anything, just another way to bring us together. I've Googled, and I can't see any sort of, like, fetish about this or any man talking seriously about this. Um, a lot of it's just been a lot of joking on the Internet and more sympathetic men if uh, a woman got hurt and couldn't do it herself. But, again, I don't know what your thoughts are about this and um, if this is a thing that men are interested in. Your call reminded me of the one time I had heard that someone out there and a kind of high-profile someone had expressed an interest not in changing his lover's tampon, but in being his lover's tampon. Prince Charles was in conversation. He was talking on the phone with his then-mistress, now-wife, Camilla Parker Bowles, and it was recorded surreptitiously and published. And what everybody said at the time and still says is that Prince Charles wanted to come back as her tampon. Uh, I'm reading the text of it now. I have it in front of me. Charles, oh God, I'll just live inside your trousers or something. It would be so much easier. He wants to be in her pants all the time, wants to get in her pants all the time. Jokes about being her underwear. Who hasn't made that joke with the lover they were super into? I know I have. Camilla laughs. What are you going to turn into? A pair of knickers? Both laugh. Oh, you're going to come back as a pair of knickers, she says. Charles, or God forbid, a Tampax. That would be just my luck. Camilla, Oh, what a wonderful idea. You are a complete idiot. He wasn't really interested in coming back as a Tampax. That was actually his worst case scenario. He desired to come back in his next life as a pair of Camilla's underpants. But shit always goes wrong for Charles. And he thought maybe he'd wind up coming back as her tampon. Anyway, moving on to your boyfriend. I'm thinking this is a fetish. I'm thinking this is a kink. I'm thinking this is something that turns him on. And that's why he wants to do it. There are lots of other ways that he could... Be really intimate, that you two could be really intimate in ways lovers typically aren't. You could wipe his ass. He could wipe your ass. He's not proposing that. He's proposing this deeply symbolic act that is very much tied to sex and reproduction and otherness, the woman's body versus his own body. And I'm sure it's a kink and there's a way for you to find out. Let him do it. Or let him watch you do it under the ruse of showing him how it's done so that maybe later, if you're more comfortable with the idea, you'll let him do it. But he has to be naked or in his tidy whities while he watches you do it. And then all you have to do is glance down. And if there is a raging, drooling boner between his legs, then it's a kink and it's a turn on. And then you get to ask yourself, okay, is this, if it is a kink, if it is a turn on, is it something you're willing to allow him to do? Is it a fetish too far? Is it something that GGG in you might be able to wrap your head around? 
Will it creep you out that he's eroticizing your period in this process or would it turn you on that he's eroticizing your period and this process? There are women out there who complain about male partners who don't want to have sex, who don't want to do anything sexual during their period. You might have a guy there who's interested in doing all sorts of bizarre and fun and different and in some ways useful perhaps things during yours. So if you can get him to be honest about it, if you can get him to open up about it, if you can bust him by pointing the hard dick in his tidy whities and force him to be honest with you about it, then there's a whole other conversation you need to have about what is most likely his kink and whether then that's a kink you're willing to indulge. If you're willing to let him go there in you and you're willing to go there or let him go there for him. Hi, Dan. I am a gay male from the soon-to-be blue state of Texas, and I have a question about gay marriage. I actually, um, about two and a half years ago, married at the time with my best friend, and recently, as far as two months ago, was actually told that I wasn't enough to make him happy. And my question is that we fought for so long to get equality for marriage, and yet I find a lack of equality in the process of divorce as far as people even recognizing my marriage or recognizing that I'm in pain or recognizing that Sometimes it doesn't work out in a relationship that happens to be gay. I'm trying to avoid the stereotypes of, I told you so, gay people can't be monogamish, gay people can't be monogamous, they can't have a meaningful and loving relationship. And right now I'm just sort of frustrated and I need your advice on how to handle this and how to interact with people who sometimes give off this sort of negative energy about it. First, I'm so sorry. My heart goes out to you. I have to say, though, and, and I hope I'm not unintentionally or accidentally salting any wounds. When I hear that people are breaking up because one or the other or both said, you're not enough to make me happy, it just kind of triggers me. It makes me think of this way in which we do long-term relationships and marriage wrong, where we're expected to get all things from this person, this other person, this one person is burdened with being enough for us in all aspects, emotionally, socially, sexually, intimately, uh, and vice versa. We are burdened with being enough, everything that person might need, socially, sexually, romantically, intimately, and in reality, of course, no one person can be all those things or enough of all of those things for any other one person. And we are allowed and we should look outside the relationship or reach outside the relationship. If not for sex, and I'm not necessarily talking about everyone has to have an open relationship, everyone has to have outside sexual contact, but we should be allowed to reach outside the relationship a little bit to get a little bit more of perhaps the emotional support that we need or the intimacy that we need from friends. And Allowing for that, allowing for your spouse to have other people in their life who are capable and happy to meet 
some of their needs while still respecting the primacy of your relationship and while you still meeting enough most of their needs can make a relationship stronger. And yet so many people have it in their hands that there's something wrong with a relationship if I look at my spouse and I think I need X in my life and my spouse is incapable of providing me with that X, provides me with so much else but incapable of providing me with that thing, that X thing that I also need and therefore – our marriage is fatally flawed and I have to get out of it and go find someone who can give me everything I need. And in reality, of course, that person isn't out there. All right. Like I said, I I hope I'm not unintentionally salting any wounds here. Your question is about what to do when people don't react sympathetically, what to do when people either have a look on their face that tells you that they're going, yeah, gay men, gay people, they just can't do this marriage thing that they're bad at marriage and marriage probably wasn't for them and gay men can't make or honor a commitment. Gay men can't be monogamous or successfully monogamish. You can direct them to a study conducted by Statistics Netherlands. The Netherlands is the country that's had same-sex marriage the longest since 2001, rounding up now, closing in on 20 years. And they studied marriages performed since same-sex marriage came to the Netherlands. And what they found was the couples who were Least likely to divorce were gay men, gay male couples, least likely to divorce, more likely to divorce, straight couples, opposite sex couples, more likely to divorce, most likely to divorce, and most likely to divorce were lesbian couples, same sex female couples. You could throw that study in their faces. It's not hard to find. Google Statistic Netherlands marriage study. It pops right up. And I always like to add when I mention this study, of course, that gay male couples are the least likely to be monogamous, straight couples more likely to be monogamous, lesbian couples most likely to be monogamous. So it would seem that monogamy correlates inversely with the success of a long-term relationship. That's just this one study. More studies are needed in correlation and causation. But you could throw that study at them. You can also take comfort. I mean, a perverse sort of comfort. Yours is not the only same-sex marriage that was made possible by a hard-fought, hard-won effort to secure this right for same-sex couples. Yours is not the only one that fell apart. Julie Goodridge and Hillary Goodridge were the plaintiffs in the Massachusetts Supreme Court case that brought same-sex marriage to Massachusetts, the first state to achieve legal same-sex marriage, marriage equality. And shortly after they married, after two decades together, they wound up divorcing. Divorce is one of the rights we were fighting for when we fought for marriage. It was often the case when a same-sex couple that had been together a very long time broke up that one person could be screwed over by the other person. One person may have been more of the home taker and supported the other person's career and then got kicked out with nothing and they couldn't go to a court. They couldn't have a judge order spousal support or a judge determine with the assistance of a couple of lawyers representing both sides a fair and equitable division of marital property because they weren't married. So divorce is one of the rights we were fighting for when we fought for marriage. And I'm sorry that you had to avail yourself of that right. It is a sad right, but it is still a right and it is still something that we have now that we should be proud that we have now because it makes our relationships when we can marry safer and more secure and it makes us as individuals, if we have to exit those relationships, safer and more secure. And finally, if people are giving you grief, people are being assholes in the soon-to-be blue state of Texas, you also have the ability just to raise your middle finger and hold it right in front of their faces and refuse to engage 
any further. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question. Uh, my boyfriend actually listens to the show, so if he's listening to it, hi. Um, love you. But basically, I got kind of upset this morning because I was looking at his Facebook profile pictures. We've been dating for about a year and a half, and he has a picture with his very serious ex-girlfriend where he's looking her face. And so I requested that he take it down. He agreed and took it down. But I'm just wondering what you think is the proper etiquette on this. We're now having a discussion about, you know, he's like, if you want for me to take anything else down, let me know. I don't care. Um, I personally, once we started dating, seriously, I went on my Instagram and I deleted all of the pictures of me with my ex because that just seemed like the right thing to do in terms of like moving forward, closing that door, et cetera. Um, and I just wanted to know what you think the proper etiquette is. I'm 50% on your side. I'm going to cut the baby in half here. There is a difference between your profile pics, the pics you put front and center, the pics that are the first thing people see when they go to Facebook. And those pics say, this is who I am. And this is who I am right now. And if there's a picture of you with someone else in a romantic sort of situation, kissing on a beach, having your face licked, that picture says, this is who I am with right now. And she was the ex, and you guys got serious about each other, and it should have occurred to him to take that picture down before you asked. Credit to him. He didn't fight you. He's like, oh, yeah, I probably should have taken that down. He took it down, and it is now down. You then cite going back through your Instagram and and deleting old photos from your Instagram feed of you with your ex or ex-boyfriends. And I don't think you should have to do that. A lot of people use Instagram as a sort of diary. And what you're asking someone to do if you ask them to go back – months or years and years and years and delete a whole bunch of photos of who they were then, including who they were with then, you're kind of asking them to go through a diary and rip out pages where they wrote about the relationship that they were in and to tear those pages up or burn them or feed them into a shredder. And I don't think that you have a right to do that. Not with Instagram. Profile pics, that's different. Instagram, in the way, 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 way back, who I was then Yeah, if you don't want to see pics of your boyfriend with somebody else way, way, way back on his Instagram, don't scroll all the way fucking back on his Instagram for the same reason you wouldn't if your boyfriend was the diary-keeping type, the rare male diary-keeping type. You wouldn't want to flip all the way back in his diary to the entries that he wrote when he first met his ex-girlfriend or or he was with and happy with his ex-girlfriend. So with you halfway, profile pics – Should have come down, should have come down sooner. You shouldn't have had to ask Instagram pics way, way, way back. Yeah, you shouldn't have to take those down. If you don't want to see them, don't scroll way, 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 way back. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Rescue. I'm a 36-year-old woman calling from a very large city. I'm calling to advise on whether or not I should accept money from my husband for sex. Here's the background. We've been married for, uh, excuse me, we've been married for 14 years, have a nine-year-old son, and we are currently not having sex. The reason we aren't having sex is because I do not want to. After 14 years of marriage and all the things that come with it, I see him more as a brother, and I don't want to fuck my brother. We've done all the therapy, all the heart-to-hearts, and the arrangement that we have settled on for now is that we are remaining married, living in the same house, parenting our son, we're socially monogamous for the most part, and we are free to sleep with other people. I've been seeing the same man for the last 15 months, and I'm having the best sex of my life. My husband is aware he supports me by parenting while I'm spending time away, but this is not his ideal outcome. In his perfect world, 
he would have a monogamous relationship that does include sex with his wife. Unfortunately, I cannot be that person for him anymore. I do feel some guilt around this. This is not what he signed up for when he married me. I didn't know Dan Savage existed when I was in college, and I did get married too early to know myself completely. He's gone to lunch with a woman a few times, but has said it's not what he's looking for. I've encouraged him to do online dating, but he says he doesn't want to put into the wor- in, put in the work for a relationship. I've suggested seeing a sex worker, but he is also disinterested in that. Last week, he circled back to me and he said if he's going to pay for sex, he would prefer to just pay me because he still jerks off to my pictures. He knows exactly what he would be getting from me, and I'm not as risky. That actually caught me flat-footed because he doesn't know that my number one fantasy is about being a high-end escort. Also, I think negotiating the engagement ahead of time would make a couple of things occur that I asked for but never received when we were having sex. Number one, a clear articulation of what he wants and what he likes. And number two, planning sex ahead of time. Anyway, I don't know what to do about this proposal. Because I have already feel like he's getting the short end of the stick with our current arrangement, I'm not comfortable fleecing him out of his money. I wonder if there's a way to make this a win-win. Maybe any money he pays could go towards a vacation fund or eating out of the family. I don't know. If I decide to do this, I think the devil's in the details of the arrangement. I could really use your advice on additional ways I should look at this and overall whether or not you think I should. I'd file this one under take yes for an answer. It may not always be the answer and you don't know how this is going to work out short term or long term, but at least give it a try. Your husband would like to have sex with you. You aren't particularly attracted to your husband. You are, however, turned on by the idea of being paid for sex and you're turned on by the idea of your husband paying you for sex. There's definitely some sort of DS, dom-sub, power play element going on there where you're having sex of your own free will with the guy you've got outside your marriage and your poor, pathetic husband, if he wants access to you and your body, he has to pony up. He has to pay for it. That turns you on. You wouldn't have called if this didn't turn you on at least a little bit. And so you've got to give it a shot. You need to have a conversation with your husband. You say you've done the counseling, you've done the heart-to-hearts. Have a heart-to-heart about this. Can he pay his wife for sex without feeling shredded emotionally, without destroying his self-esteem and his erotic self-esteem? Or does this turn him on too? Does the DS element of this work for him? Does it make his dick hard? If he's coming to you with money and begging and pleading for sex and that arouses him, and it arouses you, well, fucking Yahtzee. Give it a shot. Give it a try. And you're obviously going to want to include an element of role play in this where you're going to plan for sex. You're going to make a date. You're going to book him for a certain time to fuck you for a certain amount of money. And he's going to have to tell you what he wants. He's the customer. He's buying the sex that he wants in that moment. So he's going to have to offer you clarity about what it is that he wants to do with you, what it is that turns him on that he'd like to try. And then at that moment, like a sex worker, you can agree as to whether you will be contracted for those acts for that amount of money. And if there's something that he wants to do that you don't want to do, you don't have to take the booking. And I was literally thinking, I was going to suggest before you suggested it, that the money he pays you, because it's coming out of your joint funds, be set aside in a special savings account for something that benefits you both, like a vacation, like meals out. And then this becomes not your husband pathetically paying you for sex. It becomes this erotic game that you have introduced to your moribund marital sex life that revives it and makes it sexy, hopefully 
for both of you. Obviously makes it sexy for you. This idea turns you on. The last I's you got to dot and T's you got to cross is to make sure that this turns your husband on too. And then give it a try. Take that yes for an answer. And if he enjoys it and you enjoy it and it makes you look forward to sex with your husband because now it's got this erotic structure that plays into your ultimate fantasy that it doesn't sound like you've ever shared with him, now's the time to share it with him. Again, Yahtzee, you win or you might win. I can't predict how this is going to play out emotionally in the long term, but there's a chance here that you could have a big fat fucking Yahtzee on your hands. Go for it. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener here calling from Portland, Oregon. I'm calling you with a question about my sister's upcoming wedding. She's getting married to a wonderful man, and she has a kindergarten-age daughter, my niece, from a previous marriage. They're planning on having a second, quote-unquote, wedding after their own wedding for the groom to marry my niece so that he can make vows to her as well as a stepfather. I feel very weird about this. (laughs) On its face, I understand why they're doing it, and it seems very sweet, but it's just very off-putting to me. I appreciate that my sister's fiancé is trying to make a commitment to my niece as well, and he's saying, I sign up for the whole package, and I promise to be your dad. I have no problems with him or his intentions. The thing is, though, she still has a dad, and I get a sense that part of the ceremony is to act as this big middle finger to her biological dad. Um... Don't get me wrong, though. Her biological dad is a total piece of shit, and I hate him, and he's a terrible father, and I'm not really calling out of concern for him or his feelings. I am, however, concerned with my niece's feelings and her own perceptions of her own father. I think that she has the right to make those judgments on her own and to decide how she feels about him as she grows up. And a lot of this ceremony is really just being used to deepen the line in the sand between the two co-parents. I also find it very weird, this idea of my niece participating in this very grown-up idea of a wedding and making vows when she's too young to know better or to really consent. And if, heaven forbid, they do end up getting divorced, like, how is my niece to interpret that? I kind of think that the commitments between parents and child are sort of above all this wedding BS and they're shown through actions and this whole ceremony is stupid. I don't really intend on saying anything to my sister. It's her day and her child and her choices. And she's also kind of insane about weddings and the symbolism and the ceremony and all of the song and dance around them. But that's where I'm at. So what do you think? Yeah, a five-year-old knows what a wedding is and most five-year-olds know about love and romance and kisses and some even have an idea of what sex is. Some have asked what sex is. Some have had conversations about where babies come from. And most five-year-olds are aware, many five-year-olds are aware that a wedding is something that someone who is in romantic love goes to and want to marry the person they have romantic slash sexual feelings for. So taking the model of a wedding taking the ritual and symbolism and having a five-year-old girl marry the adult male partner, now husband, of her mother is just so fucking creepy and weird. I'm right there with you, caller. It's creepy and it's weird, but your sister is really dead set on doing this and nothing you or any other sane person might say would bring her to her senses. There's not really a lot that you can do to head this creepy horseshit off at the pass, except maybe ask everyone who's invited to this 
creepy fucking ceremony to make donations to the little girl's future therapy fund as opposed to her college fund. I would if I were in your shoes and my sister were crazy and I were afraid of having this conversation. I have a sister. She's not crazy. For that, I am always grateful. I would ask her how the five-year-old thinks about it. And if you're the aunt and you have a relationship with this five-year-old, you could in a non-leading way ask the five-year-old how she feels about it. And see what she says. Maybe she doesn't care. Maybe she doesn't understand. Maybe she gets what the difference between a husband and a father is. And the ceremony is about just him making a promise to her that he'll always be a good parent. In which case, you might want to encourage your sister to stop calling it a wedding and stop calling the promise that her future husband is going to make to her daughter vows and allow that word to be special and marital and for adults and have them use a word that most five-year-old kids understand, promise, that he promises to be a good and loving parent to her. I'd also be curious what the stepfather-to-be thinks of all of this. You could also approach him with a question. It's possible that everybody's terrified of telling your sister no, including her future husband, including her five-year-old kid, including you, her sister. But maybe if you joined forces, not with the five-year-old, just you and the future husband, you could convince your sister to downgrade this ceremony from ersatz pseudo-wedding to just a moment where the new stepdad makes a promise to his new stepdaughter to always be there for her and always love her as a parent, not as a husband. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with attorney Carrie Goldberg. There's a harassment case that's been getting some press lately concerning a man whose bitter ex-boyfriend was using the hookup app Grinder to impersonate him and send dozens, hundreds of men to his house and the place where he worked to harass him. Carrie Goldberg, she's the plaintiff's lawyer, and she joined me on the phone to speak about the implications their lawsuit has for tech companies and Grinder's culpability in this case. Here's our conversation. Hey, Ms. Goldberg, how are you? Hi, Dan. Great. Uh, Is it all right if I call you Carrie? Of course. So give us the summary uh, of this case. Sure. So Matthew Herrick, um, he was a 33-year-old waiter slash model living in Harlem. And he just uh, had a really messy breakup with a controlling ex-boyfriend of his. And the um, the guy... I decided to retaliate against him in lots of different ways. He um, was stalking him physically. He was um, breaking into his bank account. But the the, um, the most invasive thing that he did was he impersonated him on gay dating apps and would create fake profiles with Matthew's picture and and um, dick pics and, and stuff and and set up sex dates with strangers. And he did it on Jagged and on Scruff and on Grinder. Mm-hmm. And there were as many as like 23 guys that would come to Matt's house and the restaurant where he worked and be there to, to have sex with him. And, uh, you know, the first couple of times, you know, Matthew was really confused. You know, somebody would just show up on his doorstep while he, you know, maybe walking his dog or having a cigarette or something and, and say that he, they were, they were there for sex. And he was like, I, I'm not even on Grindr. I don't, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not into this. How, how did Matthew and, figure out that it was his uh, bitter ex-boyfriend who was waging this campaign? Well, it was a really abusive relationship. And it, it started right after, um, after the breakup. Mm-hmm. And 
it could be nobody else. No one else would care that much. Why is the complaint against Grinder and not against the ex-boyfriend? Why wasn't, or did he go after his ex-boyfriend for stalking and, and, and harassment? But how is Grinder culpable here, in your opinion? Well, this is, well, Grinder basically was the only one who could stop this. Matthew went and got an order of protection against the ex, and that didn't stop him. He continued to create the profiles. Matthew reported it to the cops like a dozen times and that didn't stop him. And he, every once in a while would get arrested for violating the restraining order. Um, but, but, you know, would, would be back at it, um, you know, directing the strangers to Matthew, you know, as, as soon as he was released from jail, you know, usually just overnight. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Matthew reported it over and over and over again to Grinder. and they did nothing. And so Matthew um, came to my office and was, <laughs> At his complete wit's end, I've, I've never seen anybody as demoralized as he because he just was like this. It's been going on for several months, mm-hmm. and you know, every hour, you know, some somebody would physically be in his space there to 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 have sex with him, and and so I said, well, you know, Grinder's in the privileged position to be able to actually stop this, and it's not. Um, and so I, you know, I tried to get them to, to, to our complaints by sending them a letter. They ignored that. And then we got a, an actual restraining order against Grindr demanding that Grindr exclude this particular user from, from their app. And wait, wait, Grindr how, how could, that. How, how could Grindr exclude a user from their app? You know, it's a, it's a hookup app, an anonymous hookup app for men anonymously seeking sex. How could they ensure blocking this person? How could they prevent this person from creating new accounts, from using different phone numbers and different email addresses and posting your client's photographs and directing people to your client's apartment? What reasonable step could Grindr have taken to prevent this harassment? Well, I think there are a lot of things that Grindr could do. I mean, like whatever Jacked did and Scruff did, Grindr could do that. So Jacked and Scruff were able to prevent this person from harassing yeah. your client on their platforms. Right. And so, I mean, I, you know, what, what a, a company can do is they can be, you know, tracking the IP addresses. And once they exclude somebody, then they don't, then they block those IP addresses. Of course, people then use a VPN, but, but each of our devices has a Mac ID. And so they could be excluding that. But then also the offender was using the same pictures of Matthew. And so mm-hmm. even if he did create a profile, they could be, you know, using photo DNA and just photo hashing to flag any accounts that were using pictures of Matthew. He was using the same words in the text messages that he, in the DMs that he was sending. And also right. just the geofencing. They, they knew where the offender lives. They knew where Matthew lives and works and where the people were going. They can use their geofencing technology. And do you, do you know for, do you know for sure what it is that the other dating apps did to, to stop the harassment of your client, the steps they took, or did they just proactively took steps and it it ended on scruff, it ended on jacked, but it didn't stop on grinder. That's yeah, it's, it's true. I don't, I don't know the, the full details, although they, they were interviewed by Buzzfeed last week and they seem to, I mean, both the CEOs of jacked and scruff and said that they, they, you know, distinctly remember taking this case very, very seriously. I mean, we didn't even have to, you know, like send them a letter. It had already been cured on those platforms, mm-hmm. but they, 
they treated Matthew's complaints very seriously because, you know, like, because it's such an abuse of, of their product. They don't want people to be harassed with their product. So the, the, that's the that's what's um, new and different about the case you're making against Grinder. Uh, I, I read the reports. I read um, the NBC News report about it, and the argument that you're making is that this is a product, and you're bringing a product liability case. Just like somebody built a ladder that was faulty, and people were breaking their legs trying to use this ladder, that there is this flaw, this fault in Grinder's product that is resulting in not legs being broken, but the, the product being misused in a way and people being harmed because of this obvious or what should be an obvious flaw that leads to this predictable harm. And therefore the company should do what? Be held accountable, be fined, have to redesign the product. What is it that you're asking for? We're saying that this entire industry, this tech industry should not be immune from liability. So there's this, this law that went into effect in 1996 that basically says that an interactive computer service is immune from liability for any content that a third party provides. Mm -hmm. And so we're saying that we're not suing you grinder for any of the content for the profiles that, that the abuse of X made. We're suing you because you have a dangerous product that you've released into the stream of commerce. Mm -hmm. And it's just like if you were to, you know, buy a battery that explodes in your face and you then have claims against the, the manufacturer of the, the battery. And we're saying, you know, there, this is a manufacturing and a design defect that not only that are they unable to exclude a user, which, I mean, in this case, the user violated all of their own terms of services, but they also don't have the, the um, sort of operational backend to even respond. I mean, they did not respond to Matthew's complaints. If somebody abuses their product or uses it as a, a weapon of, of harassment, then they have the discretion to exclude that user. But in court, the lawyer said, we don't have the technology to exclude a user. So there's, there's a real mismatch in their messaging versus their, their actions. And I mean, sure, they have the discretion, but I can't think of a situation that's more serious than Matthew's besides some, in terms of you know, the need to exclude users except for some of the, the cases involving pedophiles and, and murderers that have also shown up on, on Grindr's platform. I mystified that Grindr wouldn't take proactive steps like the other dating apps did uh, for fear of their product being misused in this way. Uh, and, and I'm a little baffled by that. I'm also baffled. It's also an indictment. We talk about this all the time. Getting a restraining order. There's a lot of people in morgues and graveyards who had active restraining orders against the people who murdered them. Um, but I think the police and the authorities can also be faulted here. He had a restraining order against this person that the person violated again and again and again and again and again. When do the authorities, when do the courts, when do the police bring the hammer down and toss this guy in jail for a long enough period of time that – Matthew's free from his harassment and he knows this motherfucker that there are consequences here, not just for Grinder, but for the perpetrator of this harassment campaign for this crime. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the problems, Dan, you nailed it, is that our harassment laws talk about, you know, per direct communications. They, they forbid direct communications from one person to another. And in this case, our, our abuser was really circ circumventing that. And he, because he was sending, you know, he was using a tech device 
to get other people to harass Matthew. And so it was, it circumvented use of, of harassment and, and it, you know, technically may not have been a violation of, of the restraining orders in the, in the eyes of, of the, of the uh, prosecutors. But, but it's true that the, the big prosecution of, of JC didn't come until we filed this lawsuit and there was a tremendous amount of, of pressure on the prosecutors because, you know, this, this, these, this man's heinous acts were continuing even long after we had filed the lawsuit. And, you know, the, the purpose of filing the lawsuit wasn't because we wanted all this money. It was because we wanted it to, to stop. stop. Right. <laughs> And, and you would think you would think Grinder would want it to stop too. Now you've been you, thrown out yeah. once. You were thrown out. Uh, the, the case was thrown out by a lower court. You guys are appealing. If you win, the end result isn't going to be there are no more dating apps and it's harder for gay men to find anonymous hookup partners on the internet. What is the goal if you should win? What would the what would the result be if you guys were successful in court in your case against Grinder? The result doesn't, it's not specific to gay dating apps or, or to Grindr. It's about holding the tech industry liable and letting people who've been injured by it have their day in court against the product that injured them. And so as long as you have a tech product that you are operating in a responsible way and responding to users who, who say that they, that they're being harmed by it, you're not going to steal this at all. It's not going to take any product off the market or shut down any websites. It's just going to say, it's just going to basically treat tech industry the same way that the rest of the world is, you know, operates like Other you, if you, treated. yeah, I mean, or like, I mean, I, I own a law firm. I have to pay a lot of money for malpractice insurance. If I do something heinous to one of my clients, they can see why, you know, and that's true of the car industry. That's true of you. Um, that's true of every single industry in this entire universe. Anyway, I, I don't want you but putting it into my listeners' heads so that they can sue me if they don't like my <laughs> advice, but please finish the thought. No, but, but it's like, but this one law that was created in 1996, which really was, was just about, you know, let's say you defame somebody on, on Prodigy or CompuServe and in, instead of suing the online bulletin board, cause that's all that really existed back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you would only have claims against the person who actually said the word. And over the, and so that, that's what the law was originally supposed to deal with was just sort of publication towards like defamation against, against uh, like bulletin boards. But over the years, that law has been interpreted and it's just gotten really, really bloated. And so they just point to this law and the, the courts are like, Oh yeah, sure. And so that's why it's, it's, um, it's even an issue that, that, mm-hmm. I mean, Congress never wanted this entire industry to be immune from liability, and it's just really freaky. It's a whole other can of worms, but but the, the, there's a new carve out to the law you cite, which is SESTA and FOSTA, which has now been enacted by Congress, signed by the shithole president, uh, to hold tech sites liable if there is sex trafficking uh, on them. Which sec- with sex trafficking being defined as anybody doing sex work at all. And so there's already been, you know, a big hole blown into this law. Uh, and it's a problem. It's a problem for sex workers. It's a problem for uh, people who want sex work to be safer, which, of course, advertising online made sex work safer, made it easier for people to screen clients, to share information about dangerous clients, to talk about best practices, to not have to walk the streets. And the the SESTA-FOSTA law, which attacked the law that your lawsuit is also uh, aimed at, 
made the world worse for people doing sex work uh, and for real for, for sexual freedom and freedom of speech on the line. Uh, is your lawsuit potentially going to have uh, do harm in, in a similar way? I think not, and I would completely agree with you that FOSTA-SESTA is a problematic law, and it was really clumsily drafted. And I think the problem with with the Communications Decency Act is that it created this whole universe where there was absolutely no ability for anybody to to, to bring cases or claims against any sort of tech industry, which then created this kind of cottage industry of, of child sex trafficking on the internet that then Congress in their very clumsy way thought that they were addressing. And while they addressed that, they also just kind of made this like blanketing, you know, declaration against, against sex work in general. Matthew's claim is, is pretty cutting edge, but there is no reason that, that the tech industry shouldn't be subject to, product liability. Grinders marketing a product, a hookup app. And mm-hmm. so much of our lives exist on a line. This is kind of like an appliance. It's like someone selling you a stove. That stove has a flaw, burns your house down. And it's a predictable risk that so many of these stoves have this flaw. So many houses are going to burn down. So many people are going to die in fires. And the company needs to fix that problem if they want to continue to sell that stove that houses don't burn down and people don't die. Grinder has a problem that you've identified around it, their product being abused in this way and they need to fix that. That's your argument. They need to be held liable so that they are compelled to fix that so that assholes like your client's ex-boyfriend can't burn houses down. And the asshole ex-boyfriend of your client has really endangered your client. It's not just guys coming around thinking they're going to have sex. He was saying online that your client had rape fantasies and sending guys to his apartment, sending yeah. guys to his place of employment, really endangering your client. Oh, and he would also, um, in the direct messages on Grindr, he, the guy would, would make it seem like Matthew like would say, oh, just, you know, I'm going to pretend like I'm not into it, but just wait for me in the stairwell or come back, you know, and, and the same person would come back. He also would say that Matthew had, had drugs to share and was into like all sorts of hardcore sex, which itself isn't isn't like troubling, except unless you you have no idea who's that somebody's coming over to to have it with you. And then he would also say super racist things. And so sometimes the people who would come weren't coming to have sex with Matthew, but were instead coming to to um to, you know kick the shit out of him. Oh my god! And and also like one of the things that you said about the stove, you know, not not bringing the house down. It's also like. You know, like the tech industry has more control over its products than other industries after they've been sold. You know, like the Tylenol manufacturer can't control, you know, its its um, pills that are laced with cyanide after they've been released from the from the warehouse. But well, wait, 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 tech, wait! Tylenol wasn't lacing pills with cyanide and sending them out <laughs> to the warehouse. They were sending out bottles of pills that were on a shelf. Someone took them off a shelf, put cyanide in them, returned them to the shelf. But go ahead. Okay. But anyways, Tylenol couldn't just, it didn't have the control, <laughs> it didn't have the control or the ability to just like wheel them off the shelf. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but with, with tech, they, they actually still maintain and retain control over their products. So they don't even have to take it off the market. They can be, you know, they're always updating and re, you know, like doing new iterations and stuff. And so it's even easier for them to be able to control things that they've released into the, the uh, stream of commerce. 
Okay, so people who want to follow it should create a Google alert for what? People who are interested in this case. The hashtag I've been using is Herrick V Grinder. H E R R I C K V Grinder. Carrie Goldberg, attorney, a victim's rights lawyer in Brooklyn. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and talking about it. Interesting case. And uh, I wish you and your client luck. Thank you, Dan. Talk to you later. Hey, Dan. I'm a longtime listener, and I finally have a reason to call because I'm trying to reconcile something within myself. I'm divorced, and the reason I got divorced is because I cheated on my husband. And for a long time, I felt very guilty about that and sad because I, I truly loved my my ex-husband. But, you know, time has passed. I spent, I spent some time being single, just doing what I want. Like, I have a great life. I'm independent. I have a great career. I mean, I'm like a self-sufficient, like happy, healthy person, but I have this obsession with cheating. I have a boyfriend now and it's not something serious. We don't live together. Um, I don't love him. I like him, but I recently started having sex with a married guy and I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I don't want to hurt my boyfriend. I didn't want to hurt my husband, but cheating is my ultimate fantasy. I mean, it's not like I want to be polyamorous because I just love the sneaking around and the fact that it's bad and the fact that it's risky. Like there's nothing that gets me off more when I have a primary partner that I care about and then something on the side. I feel so balanced and so fulfilled and so happy but it's at the expense of other people who don't deserve to suffer because of my, you know, aberrant sexual desires. I don't know how I'm supposed to turn this fetish, this obsession of mine into a sustainable lifestyle because I have to lie to someone. But then there's a part of me that's like, you know what, I deserve to be happy and this is what I like. So why shouldn't I do it? All right. You say you're a long-time listener. And if you're a long-time listener, I have to assume that you've heard me talk about and you are familiar with cuckolding. You're familiar with hot wifing, stag and vixen. And you mention and then dismiss polyamory as an option. And so you are familiar with polyamory. And polyamory wouldn't work for you. An ethical, quote-unquote, non-monogamous relationship wouldn't work for you and your particular kink and what excites you because it's permitted because you're allowed, because you aren't sneaking around and it isn't cheating. And that's a huge part of what makes your quote-unquote cheating fetish arousing for you. The secrets, the lies, the sneaking around, the risks. You might get caught. It might blow up your life again and blow up the relationship that you're in now like it blew up the relationship that you were in, the marriage you were in previously. But there's something else in addition to permitted, open, on the table – Sleeping around with other people, non-monogamy in the polyamorous sense or even the cuckolding sense where you're allowed to fuck other people and your partner isn't. And that is the DADT agreement. Now, don't ask, don't tell. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk about that in the past. Don't ask, don't tell is the agreement that a lot of people enter into in an open relationship where they don't want to know the details. They don't want to hear about it because it will fuel their insecurities and so they know their partner might sleep with other people, might want to sleep with other people, but they they just don't want to know. And to prevent your partner from finding out, to prevent them from knowing, to prevent yourself from telling them, even if they're not asking, to avoid the tell of 
leaving evidence that might speak for you, even if you're not telling them you're fucking other people. That requires some deceit. That requires some sneaking around. Now, it's permissible deceit. It's requested deceit, but it's still deceit. And there's still risk and danger there that you might get caught if you're sloppy about it. The only difference is if you get sloppy, if you put a tell out there, even if you didn't say anything, they stumble over evidence that you slept with somebody else. It's not going to blow up your marriage. It's not going to blow up your life. A person in a DADT relationship doesn't want to get caught and their partner doesn't particularly want to catch them. But getting caught is still a risk and there could be fallout. So that arousing sense of danger, that risk that right now you obtain by hurting other people, by potentially hurting other people, by with your last husband actually hurting someone else and right now with the boyfriend you have with whom you have, it sounds like either an implicit or an explicit monogamous commitment or assumption. A lot of straight people stumble into monogamous assumptions about their relationships. You're hurting him. And he may never find out, so maybe he never gets hurt, but odds are he will find out. And you're also hurting potentially the spouse of the married man that you are currently fucking when they find out. Now that person, the man that you're fucking who has a wife at home, is 98% responsible for the hurt that he might inflict. Now maybe some people would argue 50% responsible, maybe 60% responsible, some other percentage point, maybe 98% is too high. But he is primarily responsible for the hurt that he may inflict when he cheats on his wife, just as you were primarily, if not 100% responsible for the hurt that you inflicted on your husband, your ex-husband, when you cheated on him. So you have an option out there that allows for the practice of ethical non-monogamy in the context of a socially monogamous relationship with a person who would prefer that you not fuck anybody else, but with whom you've hammered out a DADT relationship because you know yourself. And the last thing that you should be doing now that you really know yourself, now that you know what turns you on, is entering into monogamous commitments that you cannot keep. So with your next serious relationship, whether it's the boyfriend you've got now or someone else that you partner with in the future, you need to be honest with them that monogamy isn't something that you're any good at, fucked up your last marriage, fucked up your last relationship. You just have to sometimes sleep with other people. And if he responds that he's not down with that, not the right partner for you, but you will find guys out there who would maybe like to sleep with other people. You wouldn't like to think about it, perhaps, and who could give you that DADT pass to sometimes sleep with other people yourself. And then Yahtzee, you win. You've got it all. You've got the socially monogamous commitment with a man who would prefer that you not sleep with anybody else. But a man who's not going to leave you if you do sleep with someone else so long as you cover it the fuck up. So long as you lie to his face and deceive him about where you were last night when you did not come home. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man, mid-twenties. I have this recurring problem that sometimes during hookups I find myself trying to fuck the other guy without a condom. And what usually happens is that during sex, I'll rub my dick between his ass cheeks or his thighs for a while, and I'll slowly work my way towards inserting it into his hole. And I can't stop myself from trying to do that at the heat of the moment, since I'm thinking with my dick at the heat of the moment. Usually, at some point, my hookup tells me to stop and to put a condom on, or to stop completely, since he isn't prepared or comfortable to do anal right now. And sometimes I catch myself and stop by myself. But... Sometimes my hookup lets me continue, presumably since he's also thinking with his dick and being fucked raw turns him on. 
whenever I do this, it's not only stupid because of the risks from STDs, it's also immoral because I'm violating my partner. Now, I'm not trying to justify it, but rather to contextualize it by adding that I often suffer from erectile dysfunction. And condoms make it much more likely for me to lose my erection. That's why the temptation to do this is particularly strong. Thankfully, I haven't caught HIV in any of the times this has happened, but it's kind of a ticking time bomb. So how do I stop myself from doing this again? I know it sounds ridiculous that I lose so much control of myself to just not do this while I'm in the heat of the moment, but experience has shown that I simply lose all capacity to think rationally when I'm faced with the opportunity to fuck someone. It reminds me of the story of Odysseus tying himself to the mast of his ship before approaching the sirens so that they won't be able to lure him into the sea with their song. So how do I metaphorically uh, tie myself to the mast in this situation? Do I just talk to my partner before we have sex and tell him, if I try to fuck you without a condom, please stop me? Or is there something else I can do? The first thing you need to do is get on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, the daily pill that provides for the folks that take it really what amounts to immunity from HIV infection. doesn't protect you against any other sexually transmitted infections. There are a lot of people on PrEP now, a lot of gay men on PrEP. The World Health Organization advises all gay and bi men to get on PrEP. And a lot of gay and bi men, because of PrEP, are no longer using condoms for anal intercourse, which is fueling a rise in other sexually transmitted infections. If you get on PrEP, HIV is not the thing that you should be primarily concerned about. There are a couple of examples of guys who were on PrEP where they did get infected. It's not 100%, but it is so close to 100% that these examples of guys who were on PrEP who got infected are real outliers. And PrEP provides really what amounts to near immunity. And so you won't have to worry about that anymore. You won't have to worry about HIV anymore. You will have to worry about gonorrhea, including gonorrhea that is resistant to treatment. You'll have to worry about syphilis. You'll have to worry about chlamydia. You'll have to worry about the sexually transmitted infections that condoms only provide partial protection from, herpes, HPV, but you won't have to worry about HIV after an incident of unprotected anal intercourse. So let's take a look at what you're doing here. You aren't stealthing. That's where someone puts on a condom, begins the sex with the condom on, and then stealthily removes the condom during intercourse. That is a shitty, rapey thing to do. You aren't doing that. You are rubbing your dick between somebody's legs. You are rubbing your dick up somebody's ass crack. You are poking at someone's hole. And I don't approve of this. I believe that people should use their words. And you know that you should use your words because you bring that up toward the end. What do I do? Do I tie myself to the mast? Do I just talk to my partner before I have sex? Oh my God, what a radical idea, talking to your partner before you have sex. Yes, that's what you should do. But what you are doing is a kind of nonverbal ask. Not a good one and not a perfect one. And some guys may wind up letting you fuck them in the ass because in the moment they're too horny. They're thinking with their dicks too. They're not advocating for themselves. They would rather use a condom. Maybe some of these guys are intimidated by you and they fear asking you to put a condom on and they allow you to fuck them, but it's not freely consented to unprotected sex. They're scared of you and they're submitting to it and not joyfully. So what you're doing, although it is 
putting it out there in a nonverbal way. You are probing, which could be construed or rationalized. And maybe even for some guys, it amounts to an ask using nonverbal cues, but it ain't good enough. And you know yourself, you know, this is a problem. So, you know, this is something you should discuss with your partners before sex. And if you have ED, when you use a condom, condoms make it harder for you to sustain an erection. There are non-penetrative sex options. You can have oral sex. You can, well, that's penetrative, but most people don't use condoms for oral sex. It's much lower risk for HIV transmission. And so you can do oral. Of course, you still have to worry about syphilis, gonorrhea, oral syphilis, oral gonorrhea, actual things, oral chlamydia, actually a thing. You have to worry about those, but you won't have to worry so much about HIV. And you can also engage in acts of mutual masturbation, frottage, all the other great stuff that gay men and bi men like to do to each other, still an option. But you should use your words. And because you know yourself, you should say to guys, I prefer to have anal without a condom. And you should add, because hopefully it'll be true then, I'm on prep. I hope you're on prep too. You may find that a lot of the guys you're going to bed with are allowing you to fuck them in the ass without a condom because they're on prep and they're willing to shoulder the risk of syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia because HIV is their primary concern. So use your words, get on prep, stop doing this shitty thing. And it is a shitty thing allowing for the fact that it is kind of a nonverbal cue that you're giving that you would like to enter someone without a condom, but you need to be cognizant of the reality of that situation where some guys may be totally down. Some guys may be too distracted or turned on to ask for the condom that they would like you to put on. And some guys may be afraid of you and afraid to ask for the condom that they would like you to put on. So prep, use your words. There are other things that you can do with a guy besides fucking him in the ass. Okay, before we get to your response calls, some of the Savage Lovecast tweets of the week. Marie tweets, oh my God, girl with the ex-partner with the Hitler mustache on hashtag Savage Lovecast. I'm so delighted and relieved to hear that you broke up with that immature argumentative douchebag I almost called in last week. I was so annoyed. Yes, queen, your follow-up call made me so happy. You, Marie, and me, and everyone else. Sad liberal tweets, oh, come on, Dan. If someone doesn't initiate conversation as often as someone wants, you shouldn't suggest they are autistic before you suggest that they are an introvert or just not compatible with the caller. These guys just want different levels of interaction. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Okay, that's fair. Maybe I should have discussed the possibility that the caller in this case, whose partner wasn't very emotionally available to them, was just an introvert or maybe not that into them. But you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with neurodiversity, and I don't think that there's anything necessarily pejorative or accusatory about suggesting that we keep in mind that some people might be on the spectrum, and that just might be an intrinsic part of their personality and not necessarily disqualifying for love and relationships, but hey, that's just me. McKinley Hart tweets, per usual, Dan, you made me look at something in a totally different way. Let's all put more energy into unionizing Amazon workers and ITMFAing, more energy into those areas than invading someone's privacy, even if that someone is Jeff fucking Bezos. Thanks for continuously rocking my world. You are welcome, McKinley Hart. Thank you for listening. If you want me to pop Possibly read your tweet on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast. Be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some of your response calls. Hi, I'm calling about the guy in Gainesville who's dating the engineer. And I just want to say that I'm on the spectrum and I've been married 20 years and most of them happily. And uh, my husband asked me years ago in some frustration, like, do you just want a relationship checklist? And I was like, yes, that is 
totally what I want. And so, uh, Guy, if you're just willing to give up the idea that this boyfriend will intuit that you want him to text you in the morning, and you just tell him, I want you to text me in the morning, you might really open yourself up to a really happy relationship and tell him exactly what you want for days, for anything. Just make a damn checklist. And frankly, uh, we tend to be really low drama as people to have a relationship with. So that's a plus. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to work out, but it could. So good luck. Hi, I'm calling about the woman in episode 638 who wants to have a baby with a sperm donor. I thought I heard she say she was 23. And then as the call went on, I thought, oh, she must be 33. And it makes sense because her biological clock is ticking and she has a solid career and tens of thousands of dollars in the bank. Sure, yes, go ahead and do it. And just tell your family you used a sperm donor. They don't need to know exactly how you used a sperm donor. But then at the end, when you re-said that she is 23, then I thought immediately, oh my gosh, no, 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 don't do this. This is a terrible idea. Kids are so much more difficult to raise than you could ever, ever imagine, especially at 23. Take five years. Hey, take 10 years. Work on your career. Bank a ton of money. Maybe you'll find a partner along the way. Maybe not. That's not important. But if you do, great. And if you don't in 10 years, then find a sperm donor and have a baby. You'll be so much happier and better equipped for the insanity that children bring to life. Hi there. This is a comment um, for the girl in episode 638 who was worried about her boyfriend masturbating to images of his ex-girlfriend. I was seeing a guy for a long time and he told me that Men in general, or straight men anyway, masturbate about their ex-girlfriends. Didn't bother me at all. But the good news was, um, after he eventually dumped me and married someone else and had a baby with her, I can take comfort in the fact that he's now masturbating about me. All right, we're almost ready to leave it there. But before we leave it there, I want to remind you that tickets for the spring tour of the 14th Annual Hump Film Festival are on sale now, and they are going fast. We're kicking off this year's tour in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on January 31st. For more info on the tour and to get tickets to a show near you, go to humpfilmfest.com. All right, that's where we're going to leave it. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. And speaking of national tours, the Savage Lovecast is going on tour itself. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events to find out when the Savage Lovecast, Savage Lovecast Live, is coming to a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Carrie Goldberg on Twitter at Ka Goldberg Law. And if you want to follow the case, you can follow the case itself on Twitter at Herrick V. Grinder. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.